Welcome to another edition of Crossing Borders, a podcast brought to you by Baker McKenzie and Asia Today International. Every month, we look at important issues for businesses across the Asia-Pacific. And this month, we're taking a look at the prospects and perils of building China's new Silk Road. China's Belt and Road Initiative will reshape China's engagement across the world. The Belt is a land corridor that passes through Central Asia before reaching Europe and connects two of the world's largest economies, China and Europe. The Maritime Road passes through Southeast Asia, South Asia, the Middle East and East Africa, a region that is home to 42% of the world's population. Belt and Road will build infrastructure across the Asia, Africa, Europe and the Middle East and it will create new markets for Chinese and foreign companies and it creates enormous opportunities for international companies and that includes Australian companies with their expertise. In addition to the opportunities, what are the risks around issues like compliance and regulatory changes. To examine this, we engage in a conversation with Gary Sieb, Baker McKenzie's Global Executive Committee Chair for the Asia-Pacific, and Baker McKenzie Managing Partner, Milton Cheng. Both are right in the middle of Belt and Road Developments, working out of Hong Kong, and they generously gave us some time while they were in Australia. Let's hear the discussion. Gary Sieb, a lot's been made about the Belt and Road projects. What are the risks? What sort of risks are we talking about with Belt and Road projects? The risks really range from the transactional uh, through to country risk, through to compliance risk. Um, I was recently at a discussion uh, around this in Hong Kong, and uh, we had uh, a number of different uh, emphases uh, around the, the, the coffee table: an academic, a corporate, and me as the as the as the lawyer. It was interesting to me that. The topic du jour, the real interest that was generated in that room, was around compliance risk in a lot of the Belt and Road destination countries, an issue that's top of mind of people. And I would say as a uh, disputes lawyer that managing the risk of uh, failure or of disputes is really critical as well. So where are you going to have those disputes? How are you going to do that? Will you do it through arbitration? Will that be in Hong Kong or Singapore? How will you structure that in a way which is protective as well? So it, it's really the range of uh, risks attendant to the nature of the transactions, financing the transactions, the country risks and political risk, compliance, and then the management of that risk. And that's critical that you, you, you look at that at the front end of these transactions. Tell us about these compliance risks. That's intriguing. How does that work? Well, a lot of countries along the Belt and Road Initiative and the pathways are countries where there's a certainly a perception that, uh, for example, corruption risk is high, uh, that rule of law may not always be as uh, constant or consistent as there are in many developed uh, uh, markets and jurisdictions. So the issue around that is, what is is there is there going to be a leakage of funds? How do you mitigate that? How do you prevent that in advance? What programs, systems, policies do you do you have uh, in in ensuring that when you go into those countries that are seen as high risk countries, you're not uh, taking on a risk uh, around the anti-corruption and other compliance issue? I'd imagine though uh, that would have a whole lot of implications for Australian businesses. I mean, but what sort of opportunities would Belt and Road open for Australian businesses, um, Milton? Well, I guess I mean uh, the for Chinese investors coming into which. 
whichever markets they are, whether whether on the Belt and Road or Australia, which has been a traditional investment destination for Chinese investors and companies. China brings uh, the financing, but also see the production capacity that they have uh, in China, which could support exports into the destination country. But marrying that up with local know-how, uh, local relationships, and so on, uh, much in the same way as uh, FDI into China had, had has evolved over several decades. I think with the Belt and Road Initiative, it's a it's the current day manifestation of the Go Global drive that has been around in the, from Chinese government policy for for quite a long time since the 1990s, and the make uh, Chinese companies global powerhouses. You know, as as they will have learned from working with North American or other investors going into China, the best way to succeed is also to work with your uh, local partners. So I think Australian companies in tendering for for these working with Chinese financial or other investors, I think we will have lots of opportunities in the various uh, Belt and Road uh, sectors. But the Australian companies will need partners. Yes, yes. Well, they will be partners to the, the Chinese uh, investors coming into this part of the world. I'd imagine sort of when you bring in investors and IP owners and suppliers and financiers, and it's all a mix. And I would imagine that would have its challenges because they're all so different and they're all coming from different directions. How would this best be managed? So in the context of large projects, some high-risk jurisdictions, lots of different legal systems, uh, that adds to the complexity. So collaboration is really key, Um, whether you're a partner, a joint venturer, financier, uh, indeed for Australian companies as well, supplier. So, you know, we're very resource rich in Australia. Collaboration around that is key. Ensuring that um, you have uh, effective uh, agreements and arrangements in place and you have the sorts of protections that we referred to when we talked about the risks are uh, really important. What, What sort of Australian businesses would this attract? Would Belt and Road attract? Well, I think that, I mean, there's a range. So we're, we're resource rich in Australia. Uh, so there's a supply uh, opportunity there. There are advisory and consultancy opportunities. Uh, there's project management opportunities. There are opportunities all through the sort of chain, if you like, in the transaction or in the project. And and I think that it presents both that opportunity and attraction uh, to Australian firms. There's also um, a system of work issue here, and it's a, it's a positive advantage, I think. So I'll give you an example. In in, in Hong Kong, where I'm based, the, the cement industry there is very active, very competitive. And uh, I've worked in that in- industry with clients in that industry for some time. There are now sort of systems in uh, of work, uh, of, of driving efficiencies around that, that have been brought into the industry in the last dozen years or so. Many of the methodologies have come out of Australia or through Australians in that industry. So I think that there's also a methodology, uh, project management or a, or a, a, a transactional management opportunity there as well. Yeah, and also I guess just to supplement, initially a lot of the financing will be Chinese policy banks, multilaterals like the AIIB, uh, but as those projects, perhaps in the medium to longer term mature, uh, and they're grounded in the investment destinations, uh, the Chinese companies with their partners will be looking for alternative sources of capital domestically as well. So there's room for uh, asset managers in Australia, for example, uh, advisory services as well in in due course. But there are risks, I would imagine, from a lawyer's perspective of 
changes in regulatory stipulation, wouldn't there? That's, that's right. happening all the time with China, isn't it? Within China, yes. So, I mean, insofar as outbound policy, uh, SAFE control, capital controls and all that, that's true. But you got to remember that the Belt and Road spans such a vast uh, range of nations, some of whom are common law based in there. So even the legal systems are different. Some are common law based, some are civil law based, some have more continental approach. Uh, so that requires a, a range of legal expertise across all of these types of systems of law that, that it's going to be challenging for Chinese firms to find unless they use a, a, a law firm that can provide those different types of skills in the countries that, that, that they operate or plan to invest in. And also, I guess, you know, uh, traditionally, there's been quite a lot of Chinese uh, emphasis, I guess, on government-to-government relations. But as these projects go in, or certainly as they start to grow in, in the, sort of the secondary phase, where the state-owned companies are followed also by maybe more private enterprises that go in, where you're dealing with private sector, follow-through investments, the relevance of the government relationships to support those investments and then smooth the path and all that, I think, will become less and less. And you have to rely on just normal market factors and, and, and legal system factors. Could I just add two comments to that? And I think it's it's a point well made that uh, the regulatory environment in China, of course, certainly changes. But the policy support for outbound investment through the Belt and Road Initiative and then the trade flows that are sought to be built uh, and amplified from the back of that is very clear out of China. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a bit of, uh, well, one can't be complacent, but there's a bit of, uh, policy support that is consistent or, or reliable can be relied on. Uh, and that's been clear over the last 12 months, for example, mm. where there have been limitations on out, outbound investment. That has not impacted the Belt and Road projects. Uh, but the other point is I'd just like to share that we've done some work around uh, what are the complexities, what are the risks confronting businesses in our region generally. We've, got, we've gone out with a, a, a report, Simplifying Business in a Complex World, where we've asked some simple questions and got some clear answers. And the issue is uh, around um, regulatory change. That is a fundamental risk that people identify regionally. Uh, in fact, it's about it, it's in the top three risks aside from digital and tech, technological disruption. You know, working to manage costs in an environment where there's ever increasing pressure on margins, and then re, you know, managing and complying with regulatory change is up there with those those other two. So that is a sort of constant issue on the minds of everyone. That's not necessarily Belt and Road related, but clearly Belt and Road is also. It's, it's also an issue in the Belt and Road uh, proposals. Which would mean that any Australian business going into this would be have to be prepared for those regulatory changes. It's part of the landscape. It's part of the risk management of it. It's part of the profile. It's probably part of the project assessment as well. Some of this can't be forecast, but you need to be conscious and need to be, need to be flexible, I would say. Tell us about the Chinese companies participating in Belt and Road. I'd imagine a lot of them would be state-owned enterprises. Um, yes. I mean, at this point, yes. In, I mean, initially, uh, the uh, the thought leadership report that Gary mentions um, cites some data on that, and I think right now there's 40 to 50 uh, state-owned enterprises uh, who have. Who have been involved in one way or the other or, or driven I think what 1700 1700 uh, projects in Belt and Road countries uh, over the last three four years some examples are I think you mentioned our report Sino Hydro building dams in Laos and so on uh, I think that will continue to be the case right now while the emphasis is still on infrastructure uh, and sort of first stage investments but that is going to to evolve very quickly because um, there, there's already private sector companies maybe initially in, in 
in, in areas such as real estate uh, who are following in very closely. Uh, Country Garden, uh, based in Shunda, has already started to, to build large-scale projects in Southeast Asia. There are also technology firms like Tencent who are you know, getting into startups all, all over the world, including along Belt and Road countries. Um, and in that, I think, we will see more con- continue. Now, these days, the economic cycles you know, are becoming more and more compressed. So there will be a lot of non-infrastructure, private sector companies that will want to be first or early to market, following through on, on the Belt and Road uh, policy push. Could you could you see a time coming where they will be as dominant as uh, the state-owned enterprises? I think it'll be a it'll be the the Chinese government's policy of going global for all Chinese it applies to all Chinese companies, uh, and I think you'll see a I'm not sure I'm not sure that necessarily dominance is the right way to describe it, but there'll be a balancing out so that it'll be uh, about investment across a whole range of, of sectors. Right, I mean, and are there are there any implications for Australian businesses as as it shifts? Towards private Chinese businesses, even as SOEs, they, 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 the, the entities function as corporates. So dealing with corporates as, as a partner or a counterparty uh, uh, remains the the environment in which an Australian company will operate. Uh, working with SOEs also presents other challenges and we talked about compliance and certainly under the uh, anti-bribery legislation, uh, SOEs have a special place because they are, for all intents and purposes, uh, uh, government entities uh, under under those sorts of rules. Private entities don't quite play in that same space in a regulatory sense. However, those issues and those compliance issues still remain. Uh, and working with private uh, enterprises, private uh, companies out of China or elsewhere will still, uh, I think, Think raise the same kind of issues in terms of operational risk management, project assessment issues that we've talked about. Yeah, but I guess again, supplement in terms of what um, uh, one additional point that uh, differentiates perhaps in some some countries, SOE investment partners as opposed to private investment partners is in many countries there are sort of foreign investment scrutiny, national security type type considerations that will be more relevant for state backed, state owned uh, corporations than for privates. Uh, but that's that's again. That's that's not something new. There's been a lot of um, experience over the years in, in various types of SOE investments. But what Australians bring, companies bring to it is still the same as Gary says. Uh, also, you know the the, the the know-how, the expertise, uh, the credentials that you have on on environmental factors and so on and so forth will still be relevant not only for investors coming into Australia or Australasia, but also in partnering with Chinese investors going elsewhere in, in the in the Belt and Road region. So, in other words, there's lots of opportunities for Australian businesses as long as it's uh, well managed. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Well put. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Pleasure. you. So there you have it. Some great insights from Gary C, Baker McKenzie's Global Executive Committee Chair for the Asia Pacific and Baker McKenzie Managing Partner Milton Cheng. And that's it for now. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We look forward to bringing you another one next month.